Well, good morning, church. I said good morning, church. How are we doing today? Yeah, okay. I'll take what I can get. Well, I'm certainly glad to be here. If you take a moment, turn to somebody around you and ask, are you glad to be here? Talk to them. Are you glad to be here? I'm glad to be here, but are you glad to be here? I have to tell you, it's, uh, it's always a humbling experience to be up here. Uh, I don't take it lightly. And before I begin, there is something that is on my heart that I do want to do. Uh, I might get in trouble for it, but I will do it. I just want to acknowledge a couple people. I want to acknowledge our pastors before I begin. I am grateful for Pastor Peter and Pastor Michael, Pastor Caitlin, and many times uh, they take the time to recognize those of us who serve, but I felt it was important for me before I, I begin to recognize them. Now, they didn't put me up to this. Uh, if I told them I was going to do it, they probably would have told me no. <laughs> but I come from a, a, a church tradition where it is customary to honor a leadership. Um, and it's not to put them on a pedestal or worship them or anything like that, but it's always good to remember uh, the ways in which they serve us, uh, the times they pray for us when we can't pray for ourselves, the times they counsel us even in the midst of their own personal pain. So thank you to my pastors for your service. I always want you to know that you are appreciated and that you are loved. And thank you, Pastor Peter, for this opportunity. As I stated before, I don't take it lightly. What I want to do today is simply magnify Jesus. So you'll have to bear with me. I'm, I'm praying that I can get through this sermon um, when we were singing, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, to see you high and lifted up. That's, that's my passion. So I'll need you to bear with me. Because that, that song communicates a truth that I would say grips me every single time. And it's what I want to do in the sermon today. It's to show that Jesus is in fact high and lifted up. What I want to communicate to you today and what's really in my heart is to really see God's people live as God's people. My heart today is for us as followers of Jesus in the midst of a broken world that's hurting, that's dying, plagued with violence, plagued with immorality, we live in a culture now where good is now called evil, and evil is called good. 
We live in a culture of pluralism. And the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to communicate this gospel truth of who Jesus is in that world, in this world. And the question we'll be exploring is, will the world, will the outside world see Jesus when they look at us? Will they see Jesus? If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 4. And I do want to take a little time with this. Uh, So I'll start off by reflecting on the early church. The Spirit of God is moving and how they are testifying to Jesus. How they're testifying to the risen Savior. Acts chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let me give a little history to what's happening here. So the larger context is that many, many days prior to this, Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the dead. He hangs out with his disciples for 40 days. Then he ascends to heaven. And he tells his disciples before he leaves, wait until you receive power. So the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you will be witnesses to You're going to testify not only of my death, but of my resurrection, that I am the coming king. So fast forward, we get to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. They wait. They're praying. The disciples are gathered in the upper room, and then the place is shaken by a powerful wind. The Holy Spirit fills them. And that is where we see pretty much the launching of the church, where they actually begin to move out in the call that Jesus has given them. But notice they could not do it until they were empowered. I'll say more about that later. So this is what's happening. So we come up to Acts chapter 3, which is the context for this text. 
Peter and John, they're going to the temple, and there's this man who's been lame from birth. And he would sit there regularly begging alms. So he's asking for money. Peter responds, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up. And the man is healed. People are astonished at what is going on. They are seeing the glory of Jesus Christ on display. But as you and I both know, not everybody's happy about the glory of God being on display. Thus we come to Acts chapter 4, where they're arrested, they're taken into custody. Now Jesus told them before his crucifixion, this is what's going to happen to you. A time will come, they will arrest you, they will bring you into the synagogues. For my name's sake. But check this out. Don't meditate on what you're going to say. Because in that hour, I will fill you. I will give you what you need to say. And thus we arrive at this text. They are called before the high priest for proclaiming this man to be healed. In this, they testify to the power of Christ, who's been raised from the dead. We see this in their response. But I want to bring something out, which is, is connected with our context today, in terms of will the world see Jesus? Because at some point, that question is going to come up. By what power do you do this? What power do you live by? What drives you? What motivates you? So we have their response. Verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And full of the Holy Spirit, what does he declare? That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who has not only made this man well, you crucified him, but he's risen. And there is no salvation in any other but him. That's a bold statement. That's a bold claim. We'll talk about that a little later. Verse 13, and we'll read to verse 22. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. So something in their demeanor, something in the way they present themselves is beyond them. It's outside of their capacity to even do. These are uneducated men. How are they talking to us this way? This boldness, this clarity. Now, mind you, these are the chief priests. These are... These are the scholars when it comes to biblical authority or theology. The Torah. Who are these unlearned, uneducated fishermen? And how do they stand before us? Talking as they do. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now, as I thought about this, they are seeing these men do something that in their own strength they could not do. This, the text has already established that. 
But now they're also seeing God's glory being displayed in this man that was healed. They could not deny it. In fact, this man, we find out later, is over 40 years old. Lame from birth. He was a regular. Everybody saw him. Everybody knew who he was. How is this guy healed? If you want to talk about proof, well, people knew this guy. He's been, like, he's been like this all the time. You don't just get up and walk. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed... That a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The purpose of why we are here is to place Christ on display, to demonstrate to a broken world the risen Jesus. Now, the reason I came to this text is because I wanted to look at how the first century church started carrying this out. And what was their message? He is risen. One thing that I love about God is when you actually study like the resurrection, all of the events surrounding it, God demonstrates his glory in such a way that it cannot be denied. We see that with this man that's being, that has been healed. But I want to give a little bit more history on this council, these chief priests. These are the same folks who were at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus saying that he saved others, but he cannot save himself. When he was placed in the tomb, these are the same folks that went to Pilate and said, look, this guy is an imposter. He's wicked. He's already caused enough trouble. So we need you to give us some Roman soldiers. Give us a guard just to guard this temple. Excuse me, guard the tomb. Because this imposter said something while he was still alive. He said in three days he's going to get up. But he's deceitful. So let's just give us some soldiers. They can guard the tomb so we make sure this doesn't happen. Lest his disciples come and take his body away. We see this recorded in Matthew 27. We get to Matthew 28, something happens. It talks about how the angel descended and rolled away the stone. And the soldiers who were there, they saw what happened. These same soldiers go to these priests, this council, and said, we can't explain what just happened. That dude that we put in there, he ain't in there no more. We saw this angel, I don't know what it was, but it said we fell down like dead men. I mean, just over, now these are Roman soldiers. I mean, you're talking about an elite fighting force. They, nothing scares them. 
but they are scared out of their mind. What is this? I cannot explain it. The chief priests and the elders, what do they do? They take in the information. They say, here's what we're going to do. We'll pay you a bunch of money. Now, for those who like scandal, read the scriptures. We've got all kinds of scandal. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> they say, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll pay you just to be quiet. We want you to tell another story that his disciples came when you were sleeping and they stole the body. Where am I going with this? The power that we see in demonstration is these people, Peter and John, holding on to a truth that they themselves cannot comprehend nor explain. And they're demonstrating this truth to a watching world that can't explain it and can't comprehend it. This is the true gospel that we preach. But that is my concern today. Is this the Jesus that we are preaching? When we talk about Jesus in this room, are we talking about this Jesus, the risen Christ, the Jesus who defies all logic, all understanding? Or are we talking about a different Jesus? The temptation... To form a different Christ is always present. The temptation to formulate another Christ is always present. What I think about this Jesus that's being presented. is that everything hangs on him. They report to this council, look, there is salvation in no one else. Jesus is it. Question is, are we saying that same truth to the culture we live in? Especially this culture of pluralism. There are many gods. There are many lords. You sure Jesus is it? Can he really stand alone? How do we do this? How do we fall into this kind of temptation? Well, there's a couple ways, but Here's one way this Jesus can be interpreted. Kind of gave him names, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. So Jesus, the add-on, the addition to our lives. I think back when I was younger and sometimes hearing preachers preach, and the way Christ was always uh, uh, presented was there's this empty space in your life. This void. Or this room, shall I say, in your life. You've got wonderful things in your life. Things are going wonderful, but there's just this one space. There's one wall. That's empty. You've tried to put so many things on it, and it just didn't work. Didn't stand. Nothing quite seemed to fit there. 
There's only one who can fit there. That's Jesus. Only he can fill that one void in your fully operational life. The problem with that Jesus is that he may not have any impact on any other aspect of your life. So I can compartmentalize Jesus. You know, I go to church on Sunday and I'm done. I praise him. I worship him. We sing songs and that's it. After that, my life, I kind of do what I want to. doesn't impact me he fits within my parameters he's a comfortable Jesus and as I'm reading these I kind of want you to think about the Jesus that's being presented here in the text the Jesus upon whom everything depends are we creating this false Jesus? Oh, but I do think about him sometimes. When tragedy strikes, what happens? Oh, I'm in church this Sunday. I need a breakthrough today. I need prayer today. But once it's over, my life is back to normal. Jesus goes right back in that safe box. Or there's another kind of Jesus. I call him Jesus the accommodator, the consultant. This Jesus, he gets me. We negotiate, you know. Say things like this. Well, you know, I'm good with treating people, you know, kindly, loving my neighbor. But you know, this whole, this whole sexual purity thing. No, Jesus understands that I'm a man and I have needs. He gets that. Or when it comes to forgiveness, loving my enemy. No, I'm not that good of a Christian. That's for other Christians, but that's not for me. You know, Jesus doesn't really care what I do with my body as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Why does it matter? This Jesus... It's about being a likable Christian. Now let me tell you, when you stand before any kind of council or any group and say Jesus is the way, you're not going to make a lot of friends. But the question for us to think about, because we have friends who don't know the Lord. We have friends who have other faiths. And what I'm trying to get at is Jesus it, or are there others beside him? Is he the only way? You know, Satan can't stop us from talking about Jesus. He'll certainly try to water down the message. Just water it down. Jesus is like any other good teacher out there. But the last time I checked, if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the last time I checked though, Buddha is still in the ground. Muhammad and other great prophets are they're still in the ground. These other 
great teachers we can compare Jesus with, or shall I say even reduce him to, they're still in the dirt. So we're proclaiming something about Jesus that no one can match up to. We're saying he got up out of the ground. Now, typically at this point, we could ask the question, well, why? Why do we fall into this trap? Why is it so easy? And some of the answers might be, yeah, it's my pride, my arrogance, selfishness, ego. It's that sin nature again. But I want to push us even further, not to look at ourselves today, but to look at Jesus. At what point does Jesus become more powerful than your pride? At what point does Jesus become powerful enough? To overcome your ego. At what point is he greater than us? I think we're pretty good about acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging where we fall short. But I want to push us today to not stop there. Yes, I deal with my pride. But did Jesus do something about that? Does his work make any difference? We're talking about what the outside world sees when they look at us. Is it Jesus? At what point do we start to believe? That he is who he says he is. Please know that these man-made versions of Jesus will never save. They never save. They won't convict us. They won't challenge us because we control this Jesus. But today we're looking at an all-powerful Jesus who is outside of our control. I believe in a Jesus that got out of the ground, and guess what? I cannot comprehend that too. It blows my mind. But we have evidence that says this is what he did. Now, let me speak to the more obvious question that you all might have right now. Tim, why are we talking about resurrection? I mean, after all, it's not Easter Sunday. Well, the connection that I want to make and that Scripture makes is that the power of the risen Christ that dwells in us if that's what we believe. That power joins us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, not only does it set Jesus apart, but it validates that he is who he says he is. If anybody tells me I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise myself up, and he does it, What do you think about that person? Here's why I'm going here. Because if he does that, can he deal with my innermost struggles? If he can do that, this is about trust. It's saying that Jesus is dependable. I can trust him. 
he makes good on his word. I'm convinced that only that truth is what will make it possible for us to see Jesus as he is instead of creating false Christ. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 6. This is how this truth connects with us today. Let me make sure I get there as well. So starting in verse 1. So Paul is coming from a conversation where he's talking about uh, the depth of grace. And where sin abounds, grace goes that much deeper. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. In the same way he died for our sins, so we too die to sin. Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. What I love about Paul's argument is he connects our lives in Christ patterns it after his death and resurrection. So the reason we're focusing on this today isn't just to say, yeah, he died, he rose again, but to consider the implications of that truth. That because of him, then I too die to self. Once again, I think, as I mentioned before, we're good at talking about our struggles. But when you think about your struggles, how often do you uplift his strength and his ability to overcome that struggle? Because sometimes I think we get into this kind of pity party. And it's almost like our struggles become a relative of ours. We boast in it. You know, I just struggle with my pride. That's just how I am. But Jesus loves me. Yeah. I have flaws, like, you know me, I'm just, I worry a lot, you know, I do, I'm just like that. I'm just cynical, I'm skeptical, it's just how it is. My answer to you is, didn't he do something about that? See, if the world's going to look at us and see Jesus, are they seeing all of who Jesus is? Not just the death, but the resurrection thinking about an example. <laughs> when I was a kid, teenager, that my parents used to do to my brothers and I, it's kind of shameful, but, <laughs> you know, I'll tell it. <laughs> they never let us fight. And whenever we would start scrapping, arguing, getting into it, my mom would call us over. So this might be me and my brother John or my brother Michael. We would call us over. She was like, okay, I want you guys to hug each other. And we're mad. I don't want to do it. You're like, come on. So we hug each other. She said, now I want you to sing the Barney song. You know that song, I love you, you love, here we go. So we're like, I love you. She's like, no, start over. Start over. 
So we're mad. <laughs> and then we go back to it. Okay, do it again. And she'd make us sing it and sing it until it became real. And by the end of it, we were hugging each other for real. By the end of it, we were talking to each other and saying, hey, man, I'm sorry. I, got, I, I flew off the handle. But I saw something that she was doing. This connects with life in Christ. It's something my dad always said. In this house, that's how my dad would say, in this house, we love each other. In this house, we don't hurt each other. We help each other. So when we get to acting a fool, he'll say, not in my house. I do that to my kids. Uh-uh, we don't do that here. What point am I making? Life in Christ is the same way. If the world is going to see Christ, they have to see his nature. We're fighting just like the world. They get that for free out there. They don't need to come in here. We're just as sexually immoral as the world. Why do I want your Jesus? You hate, you cut, you do all kinds of stuff. Just Why do I want Jesus? Because they see no benefit, no fruit of his life in us. So what my parents were saying, in this house, for our context today, in this kingdom, we love each other. Christ's rule is the only rule. That means we don't do what we want to do. We don't think how we want to think. Everything that we do now is tied to him. Even my private thoughts come under his lordship. I haven't done that to my kids yet. I think maybe once or twice I did that to maybe Kayla and BJ. Uh, but I do think it's effective. So parents, try it. Try it. But the seeing Jesus, see, when we come to Christ, and as Peter preached last week when he talked about reconciliation, we come into a new kingdom. What does that mean? We come into a different order, a different way of thinking, a different way of living. This is why the other models, the false models of Jesus don't work. Because we are worshiping a Jesus that says, I want all of you. Every last part of you belongs to me. You know what that means, family. Pastor Peter has preached on it. There's nothing he can't require of me. There's nothing he can't ask of me. There's no area in my life he can't speak to. Why? Because we're in a whole new kingdom. See, in the culture out there, we run things. We rule. It's about me. It's all about the autonomous self. No one tells me what to do, but not in this kingdom. There might be anarchy out there, but in here we have a Lord. We have a Savior. What am I calling us to? I want us to look to Jesus for who he is, not for who we want him to be. I think this is the only way we can fully demonstrate to a broken and dying world that he is real. So if he died, and he did, if he rose from the dead, and he did, the understanding that we carry 
every day is that his death and resurrection isn't just hanging out there somewhere. It's a truth that's floating up there, and I just acknowledge it. But it's a truth that has daily implications for how we live, how we think. I've certainly seen this in my own life, a growth in Christ. That's what we're calling it. Or even in my younger years, God showed me his compassion, his mercy. Because you, you have to know, I was pretty self-righteous, you know. I grew up in the kind of context where it was a lot about truth, 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 holiness, righteousness, which are powerful things, powerful truths of who Jesus is and what God has called us to. But what God started showing me in college is that there were other aspects of Christ that I wasn't quite picking up, that he is still compassionate. He's merciful. So, and sometimes I think that's what happens to us is we're living on snapshots of Jesus. So maybe we're not constructing a false Jesus, but maybe we're living on a partial Jesus. A Jesus that, okay, I get his love and his compassion. Yeah, but I need to know he's holy and he's righteous. Or in my case, if he's compassionate. He doesn't throw people away. That's what I used to do. You didn't believe what I believed. You didn't think how I thought. I write you off in the name of Jesus. So I think if you met me 10 years ago, I wouldn't be talking like this. But I'm grateful for what Christ has done and is doing. So as we close with the text, I reflect on proclamation and demonstration. Just as the apostles were proclaiming a Jesus who is outside of our control, cannot be comprehended, yet who comes close to us. Let that be the same Jesus that we declare to a dying world. Because the world is asking, is there a healer? Is there a savior? Who's going to deal with this brokenness? Let them see a people in demonstration who not only talk the talk, but who walk the walk. That they can look at us and they can see the love of Jesus. They can see his kindness, his mercy, his holiness, his righteousness. And ask the question, by what power are you like that? You people are in here actually caring about each other. How is that even possible? In the world out there, people like you and me don't get along. Really? You're saving yourself for marriage? That's kind of outdated. Why? Why do you do that? What's driving that? May we then turn and say, because of the resurrected Jesus. You can look at us, see a people that are being transformed by the living Jesus. I would like to invite the ushers to come forward. And I will pray for our, this time.
Oh, Jesus, we stand in this hour as we reflect on who you are. Lord, do not let this be just any ordinary moment, but that we truly see you high and lifted up. We recognize your death and your resurrection and the power that that carries in our lives right now. Right now. Not just next year, not five years from now, but today. That Jesus, just as you died, so we too die to sin. And just as you raised up, we too are raised to new life. That those struggles, those attitudes, no longer have power over us. We thank you so much for all that you have done. I pray, Lord, that we will proclaim your truth with boldness. And Lord, I realize this boldness is not something that we can just conjure up. But very much like the apostles, they had to rest on your spirit. Holy Spirit, will you do the work in us? Jesus, fully persuade us of who you are today. And may we stand on that truth with boldness and declare that truth with clarity. mighty name of Jesus. Bless our gifts, Lord. That ultimately, we're giving more than money. We're giving our lives to you. In Jesus' name.